I'm Kelly Llewellyn. And I'm Greg Homme. And this is Caveman and Counselor. Hello, and welcome to Caveman and Counselor, the podcast that delves into complex world of mental health and recovery. I'm your host, Greg Homme, alongside my co-host and wife, Kelly Llewellyn. In this episode, we are going to explore, understand, support mental health of our first responders. Of course, before we begin, we want to provide a content warning. This podcast is meant for informational purposes only and not intended to provide direct help. If you are someone or know someone is struggling, we encourage you to seek the guidance of a qualified professional. In today's episode, we're shedding light into the often unspoken challenges faced by our first responders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, addiction, anxiety, and depression. According to a study conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services, which we call SAMHSA, up to 30% of first responders develop behavioral health conditions, including but not limited to depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. As compared to the 20% in general population, we discuss the intense pressure that comes with the job and how these can lead to maladaptive behaviors. That's right, Gregorio. We'll also be speaking with Michael Trippett, MFT, and also a former peace officer, along with a brave retired first responder, Megan, who will share their personal experiences, offer invaluable insights, and provide resources for those in need. So if you're a first responder or someone who cares for one, this podcast episode is for you. Hey, thanks everyone for tuning in and Greg, let's get started, shall we? Let's. Hello and welcome to Caveman and Counselor. And we are here today with... um, Mike Trippett, MFT, and former first responder. Uh, Michael, please tell us about what you did as a responder and how many years you you did that. Uh, I worked for a police department in the Inland Empire for about 28 years. I did much of that time in patrol and much of that time in administrative. Um, As a first responder, I fortunately was not or did not witness or be a part of something extremely dangerous where I felt my life was going to be in danger. I was very fortunate in that respect. Um, also, I spent a lot of years in admin. I was a admin corporal for three years, an admin sergeant for three years, and a lieutenant, which is basically administrative type work for seven years. I uh, retired about 10 years ago, and I, when I was in law enforcement, I went to school. I got my master's in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University. I've been a counselor now uh, since that time. I started my internship. I've been licensed now for about six years, and I enjoy working mostly with adults and a lot of couples yeah. and first responders as well. Um, I don't work much with children, however. But, Mike, I remember you saying as a first responder, you also did a lot of counseling. Um, I don't know what they called your position, where you would go in with people that had incidents and you helped them on debriefing or what you would do. And also you were um, a hostage negotiator. Would you speak to those two positions that you did? Yes. Um, I was part of the uh, peer support for our department. So a lot of times if someone had uh, a critical incident of some sort, I would be there to help the family to be there, just basically listen, maybe help with uh, bringing them food, just sitting with them. For example, on one occasion, one of our officers died off duty in a car crash. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went to the family's home. His brother was a good friend of mine. Mm So I just stayed at the house. I was kind of a liaison between the department and the family. I'd coordinate getting them food just and listening to them, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then also I was a crisis or hostage negotiator where um, there was incidences where SWAT was involved or sometimes just patrol where it was safer for the perpetrator, as Tweety Bird says, to come outside rather than us going inside. Mm -hmm. And so you get them on the phone, you talk to them, and depending upon what was going on, you would try to 
talk them into or get them to come yeah, out. And you had a lot of success in that. I, if I got them on the phone, they came out every time. Wow. But we should have yeah, been a baseball player. Yeah, just stop talking? Was that it? or? probably so you got to tell your hamburger story you got to tell the hamburger story for this recording um yeah i was one i was a detective sergeant at the time i was already at the department and a 17 year old kid called and said he had an ak-47 and he was going to shoot up the neighborhood that would be bad we we didn't know if he had one for sure um i went uh and talk, I got him on the phone and started talking to him. SWAT was already en route. They already evacuated the neighborhood. And I just started talking. He claimed he had an AK-47. He appeared to be depressed and sad about something. Um, I don't remember what we talked about completely. It's been almost 15 years ago now, maybe even longer. And at one point, I do remember him saying he was hungry. So I said, if you come out, I will buy you a hamburger. And he, his response was, you promise. <laughs> and I said, I promise. Mm -hmm. And he came out. And I did get him a hamburger at In-N-Out. I threw in the French fries and Coke. Good for you. <laughs> Good. Well, that, I love your stories. You have a lot of them, Mike. I, not your jokes so much. I've known you a while. Um, but <laughs> we still love you around the <laughs> office there, Mike. So um, I want to go ahead and introduce. Oh, but what made you decide to be a, a psychotherapist? What was the main reason you transitioned? I know you got your master's, well, but why? Well, two reasons. One, uh, you can I didn't want to retire and do nothing. Mm -hmm. I just that's just not in my nature somehow. I don't not sure why, but I knew I wanted to do something to help people, which was the reason I got into law enforcement, mm -hmm. and partly because of the excitement. So I thought about being a therapist. I looked into a couple schools, ended up going to Pepperdine, and uh, it just was a natural transition for me. Mm -hmm because I still get to help people. That's, oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I want to introduce our other person who's on the podcast with us besides Greg and I, and that is retired paramedic, Megan. Hey, Megan, would you tell us about the reason um, why you retired? Tell us about your story, um, you know, in paramedics, kind of general timeline of all that. Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me, first of all. Yeah, thanks for coming. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. Um, I was... I guess introduced to the field because my dad was in the fire department. So was my uncle. I have a cousin and it just seemed very appealing to me. And mm. so being a paramedic for me was always something that spoke to me. And mm. the first chance that I got in a high school regional occupational program was to take my first EMT course or emergency medical technician. And so I took that, went on to get my license. I was, you know, 18 years old when I started in the field, which wow. makes me wow, shake so and cringe young. now. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it was, it was something that this was the stepping stone to go on further. And so, mm -hmm. I worked as an EMT, then I went to paramedic school and passed paramedic school, which is the longest and hardest portion of education. <laughs> um, very intense, uh, very high standards. And then I became a paramedic and then I was a working paramedic in the field. So, you know, the interesting part for me was that I knew going into these fields that I needed to be in counseling. And that's mm -hmm. kind of an odd mm -hmm. idea for yeah. most people in our fields. But it was because of what I saw my dad go through on his job and the collateral effects into our family that I remember specifically having a conversation with my older brother that I said to him, we need to make sure that we're in therapy because of how dad is. Mm. And so the idea was implanted that we need to be doing something outside of our jobs to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Wow. 
But as time wore on and the busier you are, the more high frequency calls, the um, high frequency of violence, especially. Um, I think that is one thing that is really not recognized in our society is just how violent working in emergency medical services really is. And I think a lot of people believe that we just take grandma to the hospital when she fell and broke her hip, which we absolutely do those things. Um, and <laughs> right. we're more than happy to. And uh, uh-huh. But the levels of domestic violence, uh, mm. I'm sure that mm-hmm. Mike can agree with me, are some of the most dangerous calls that we can run. Drug overdoses, uh, stabbings and shootings, you know, the kind of stuff that you see on the news, but for us, it would happen at such a higher frequency for our 24 mm-hmm. or 12 hour shift. Right. And you know, Mike, so, I want to just, I'm, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go I ahead. I want to ask Mike about a couple of things because you're bringing up two really important points. One of them is you said that you were, you went ahead and got yourself counseling. Mike, how often do you hear first responders do that? before or during responding their that their career I, I can't I can speak only for police officers they are very as a general rule especially in the past they've been hesitant to go to counseling mm-hmm. what we did do however in where I worked is we had debriefings after any uh, critical or especially violent incident. Mm-hmm. And then uh, officers were given a chance to go to further counseling if need be. But generally, uh, and I have to admit, I did go to counseling, but mostly for relationship issues more than Mm -hmm. police officer Mm -hmm. issues, if that makes sense. But were some of those relationship issues because of the work you did? Well, I'm not sure. My My wife and I had a very strange and wonderful relationship. She was strange and I was wonderful. <laughs> Again, one of Mike's one of Mike's jokes. Okay. So well the second quote But it uh-huh. it was related to it. I I sure I had a little depression and anxiety mm-hmm. because of the police work. Because of the unknown mm-hmm. and the anxiety dealing with admin, especially as you become a supervisor and a manager. Um you, that anxiety kicks in a little more. Mm-hmm. But the the only calls that I think really affected me were anything related to children. Mm-hmm. So that I'll never forget. I went to one call where a child drowned before I had any kids, mm. and it didn't bother me too much. I went to another call later down the road, and I had a child who was the same age or around the same mm. age as the child who died. Uh, we had to do a bunch of, you know, you have to do your job. I did it all. And I'll never forget, after I was all done, I was a sergeant, so I was kind of coordinating things. I walked around the apartment complex and started crying. I bet. Very- and, of course, we did have a debriefing after that incident. Well, the second part of what Megan was talking about, Michael, I'm curious about your intake on that, your take on that, is she said, you know, paramedics have a very, work in a very violent um their work is very violent. There's a lot of violence. I hadn't thought about that before, you know. Absolutely. Well, at times we did, and at times we didn't. And I'm sure Mike is very familiar with what I'm going to say. It depends on how many officers are available because there's numerous calls going on all at the same time. And so if you have a robbery that's happening across town, and we have a domestic call, you know, but there's only, you know, one unit available or you have, you know, all, I mean, there's the 911 system happens so concurrently, like we're, all of us are running all at the same time 
or we're staggered in a sense where we can't really get any relief from it. And so, you know, we could uh, respond to an incident, take the person to the hospital, um, you know, come back, and then we could be driving back to our area and get punched out for another call. And, you know, it depends on the frequency, but it also depends on your police coverage for your area that they might be available and they might not. And if there's a a big incident, as far as a large law enforcement response to another area, then the paramedics on the opposite side will not have any availability to have officers come with us or go in and clear ahead of us. And so there were plenty of times where we were just going in. So there's really all this this stress that they and and safety issues that the public like myself is not aware of. Correct. You know, we're we're not allowed to carry weapons of any kind. Um you know, and we could be walking into an assault call, which could have been a domestic, it could have been outside of a bar, a restaurant, anything. I mean, you know, anywhere can be a location of a call with all sorts of players involved. And we arrive and we just have to deal with the circumstances. It's just such an unfortunate part because of our staffing levels that are low in EMS and low in law enforcement that we just don't have enough people to be able to provide the ideal situation of coverage and backup coverage. It uh, it does bring more stress. That's why there was more stress when you start, especially as a when I was a lieutenant, because now you're responsible for a sergeant who you have direct control over, but you're also responsible for the officers who you don't have direct control over because you're working through a, the sergeant who's kind of like a middleman. And that was, the lieutenant was the most stressful job for me. Um, and um, you're kind of expected to fix everything. And if there's problems, it's your fault. Um, for example, I was in charge as a lieutenant, I was in charge of the canine unit. We had one canine unit that messed up three times in a row and there's a lot of liability there and I was responsible because I'm the lieutenant in charge, but I don't have control over the officer with the canine. And so that was very, very stressful for me because that whole idea of being responsible for something you have, do not have direct control over. Megan, it's like, so you knew all that, you kind of knew all of this stuff going in. You know, it's like you saw it with your father, you know, and, and you, and you got it. So part of me is, is either you're crazy or extremely brave. Yes. To step <laughs> yes, into to the breach as it well, were. Yes. You know, I think, to both. I think we are a special kind of crazy that go into these jobs. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. It, you know, they always say it takes a special kind of person, you know, to work in different, different aspects of healthcare or, mm -hmm you know, first responders, especially. And yeah, we're, we're a special kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> I think Thank I God. was, I look at the situation of my childhood growing up with different perspective, obviously now, you know, that I've mm -hmm. completed 22 years on the job. And what I think now is that I was primed for it in a way. Um, my dad, my mother, there was never any kind of force into that area of study or area of occupation. We, we were not, you know, pigeonholed into this is what you're going to do. You know, you're going to be like your father. There was none of that. We, we had total free choice. It just mm -hmm. interested me. And as I continued to get deeper into the field and then get promoted and, you know, further my education and, you know, I was on a FEMA team and doing the responses with that was just amazing. And that 
I look at that and go, okay, I was kind of in a special position to where I did see certain things. But then other things that were quote unquote normal for our household were not normal for my friends. You know, we would, my dad would be on shift. He could be on shift for multiple days. There could be a huge response in, you know, anywhere in the state and he could have to be attached. He was also Mm -hmm. on a FEMA response team. So he had been to very high level incidents like the Oklahoma City bombing, Hurricane Katrina. My dad and I were both on notice of readiness for responding to September 11th. We both got canceled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, I feel like I was kind of primed for it. But then when I look at the oddities of things that were normal, it was perfectly normal for the four of us to be sitting down at dinner, you know, in our dining room and my dad telling us about a rescue that they had over the side of a mountain and, Mm -hmm. you know, different details that in other company, we probably wouldn't be talking about if we're honest. (laughs) Right. 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 Well, I think that's probably true with most things, especially since you're, you, it's such a long tradition yeah. in your family. I think. Yeah. It's just, and, but it seems normal to you. Other people are like an aghast. Like you're, yeah. Oh, and I, I didn't know until like, I got older yeah. and talked yeah. to my friends yeah. that, you know, my, my dad didn't sleep at our house, you know, for 10 days out of the month, not because he was in trouble, mm-hmm. but because he was at his job. Um, just, mm-hmm. You know, if we had Christmas, it was either at, home at our at our house or it was at the fire station you know and all Mm. the families go on holidays and and we we do a big thing which sounds cool you know but there is a lot of you know things that you know the the responders have to miss out on and it's a different situation to look at i remember i was dating somebody and we were discussing something about christmas and I said, oh, well, I'm going to have to work on Christmas. So, yeah, you know, kind of kind of shrugged my shoulders. And they went, yeah, what do you mean you have to work on Christmas? And I said, I have to work on Christmas. And they looked at me with the most puzzled look in mm-hmm. eternity I've ever seen and went, but why do you have to work on Christmas? Christmas. And I said, because people don't stop calling 911 on Christmas. Right. right. Like, hello, <laughs> let's get a clue yeah. here. So, you know, there's ins and outs of it that that was very normal for me. But for an outsider who has no concept of what the field looks like, me having to work on a holiday was just so shocking. You know? Yeah. yeah well, I, you know, I, I have to admit something, you know, I, I, I consider myself pretty, pretty as fairly astute, but it didn't occur to me until maybe a couple of years ago that how much PTSD is involved in all the first responder stuff with cops and paramedics and, and, but what's puzzling is, is this warrior culture, like suck it up. And it's oh, like, yeah. yeah. And that, that, that's the unfairness of it. And even the way societies is kind of, um, well, you, you see more and more of it, you know, where where you have to see bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But it, in my mind, it makes total sense because part of PTSD is to poor emotional emotional regulation. Absolutely, you know, heightened response. Absolutely, you know, it's and it's and it and it's funny. You never really hear people talking about that. That's kind of the curse of the job is that you really bad stuff happens. I had like a personal experience, but I saw a mm-hmm. kid basically die in the right. hospital. And and I'm thinking, Jesus, man, that and you probably had that ten of that happen. And and Mike was talking about the kid that drowned in the pool. You know, the other part is just like the not willingness to talk about it. That part kind of trips me out too, because it's like all it would do in my mind, it it, it reinforces my respect for the profession and the individual. So can I, okay, maybe Mike can speak to the fact of this like they don't talk about stuff. It's interesting you mentioned that because it brought up a uh, situation that happened in our department 
We had two officers involved in an officer-involved shooting. Both were, they had to kill someone. It was a righteous shooting. And uh, one of the officers was the cowboy officer. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was cool, man. I got Mm -hmm. to shoot someone. Oh, man, it was all right. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. You know, I don't need counseling. I can go, you know, I'm John Wayne or or whoever. And he didn't go to counseling, didn't talk about it. He was going to be okay. The other officer had the exact opposite response. Mm -hmm. It hit him hard. He felt sad. He was depressed. He had anxiety. He went to counseling. He talked about it with people. He talked and and. Um, just dealt with it, processed it. Mm-hmm. The first officer retired less than a year later. Oh, wow. wow. The second officer uh, went on for several years, probably about another 10 years. Mm-hmm. He did retire on a medical later, mm-hmm. but he was able to continue doing the job. And everybody thought the first officer is the strong one. Mm-hmm. He's the macho one. The second one is a weakling. But they actually, the opposite is true. When you face the problems, when you process it, you have to relive it. That takes guts. Mm-hmm. And totally. that guts Completely. is what gets you through it. And then he went through it. And he, he that second officer had another 10-year career. Mm-hmm. Wow. And probably a fine <laughs> policeman as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I agree with Mike. You know, the and Greg, everything you said was spot on. You know, we have this culture uh, that is so unfortunately wrong. It is so, so wrong that, you know, it is those terms because we are paramilitary organizations. You know, a lot of people come from the military and into our professions, which is great. It's fine. You know, it's like absolutely you know, we totally respect our vets. And my dad was a vet, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think over time, we've taken that kind of, you know, toughness. And it is absolutely our Achilles heel. Mm -hmm. It is the thing that will wind up killing us in some way, shape or fat, you know, some way, shape, or form. and Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is that that I learned, and I and Greg, you, you hit it on the head, where, you know, the idea that this is just our cross to bear. Well, you chose mm-hmm. this job. You knew it, get, mm-hmm. it was going to be super screwed up. Um, yes, I chose this job because I wanted to help people. I am able to critically think under stress, stay calm when everyone else is freaking out, and I don't deserve to suffer. And I think that's the part that's missing is that we continue and continue to have to push back and say, well, yes, we signed up for this job and we are not determined to suffer through it we need to be able to live i need to be able to do my job have a family a functioning and healthy family and or relationships friendships and have outside interests and have a balanced life the thing is we're not in a system that supports that necessarily that's really well said or Or a a society like don't don't get me started on that you know, yeah, yeah. I'd like to jump into that because, you know, Mike and I see this as therapists, Mike, you and I see this where, you know, people, it comes out, I say it comes out sideways of stress. They may not have, P- the person may not have PTSD, but he's, he or she's having an affair. They're gambling. They had a drinking issue. Um, they're depressed. Um, uh, you know, whatever it is, or they have an eating disorder. Mike, you see this all different kinds. How do the, do you agree with that? What kind of ways do you see the stress of this profession and the lack of support for these professionals? How do you see it come out sideways with the patients you work with? Well, when I was in police work, they used to say it's the, I hope I remember this correctly, the four D's, debt, 
games, drugs. I can't remember the other D. Because <laughs> it wasn't old school. They would say dames. Senility. Oh, that's that. Yeah. <laughs> dames and... Uh, Something else. I, anyways, that was kind of the traditional way, but you see it in a lot of depression is probably... The, oh, there's the, the other one. Oh, it could be. Yeah, that yeah. starts with D. <laughs> depression and anxiety is probably where it comes out the most. Um, especially after retirement. These... You know, as a policeman, you're, there's a lot of it's a it's a fun job if you like it. Um, you you know, you walk in a room, everybody watches you. You you're kind of the center of attention. You you get um, it's there's just something about it that can be addicting. And then when you retire, that's all gone, and that can be depressing for a lot of officers. Of course. I was, like I said earlier, I was fortunate. I was really never in a situation where I felt my life was in danger. I was, I worked in a community that was pretty safe, but I was lucky in that regard. And I had, my hat goes off to paramedics because a paramedic will see something violent call after call after call. Our calls are not back to back that way. My, my might go up oh, a parked car, look for a, uh, a racing vehicle, a, a, they're not all hot calls, a lot of boring stuff. But anyway, back to your question. Um, I would say depression and anxiety is where it comes out the most. The most, okay. And, and marital issues. A lot of infidelity in the police force. Yes, definitely. A lot of infidelity. Mm-hmm. And I don't, it's hard to pinpoint why exactly. And probably there's just a plethora of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times it's paired with partying and alcohol and drugs too. And that just reduces our, you know, it just makes us do things we normally wouldn't do when we were sober. Right. But I would, you you began to talk about this, Megan, um, you addressed it great as also Mike. Um, so, you know, I hear about this camaraderie of first responders and that they do have a hard time kind of going back into civilian life and you both have gone back into civilian life. Um, Megan, I know, you know, I kind of asked you the question, no, you had a traumatic event, correct? That caused you, forced you to retire. Yes, I did. And when you did, not only the traumatic event, but then how did you do with adjusting? And Mike, I'm wondering how you did with that. Well, you know, kind of backing up just a little bit about, you know, PTSD kind of coming into the picture for me and getting formally diagnosed and then pursuing continued therapy while I was still on the job. I was doing that, but it was at the time what was available was just talk therapy. And so I was doing my absolute best to, you know, work have these multiple incidents that were happening, go and deal with it in therapy the best that I could, you know, that was available to me at the time. And just like you were speaking about, you know, it started to leak out into other areas of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we seek out on these jobs and you know, you could say this for society in general, is that we're looking for pain relief and we're trying Mm -hmm. to numb Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And so that's why a lot of us fall into alcohol, misuse, abuse. And some people, you know, become really far into the alcoholism, um, you know, scenario. And... Mm -hmm. I absolutely think that the job affects every other part of our life because mm-hmm. we cannot control our circumstances. If if I'm at my, you know, if I'm 10 out of 10 with traumatic things that have happened over the course of a week or a couple shifts, I can't do anything about not running another call like that because right. I still have to, to do, do my job. That's how I earn a paycheck. That's Mm -hmm. how I have a roof over my head. So the Mm -hmm. option is either you quit (laughs) Mm -hmm. or 
you know, there's a lot of suck it up buttercup kind of thing. And, right. the, the, you know, mm-hmm. but like I said, we, we try to deal with it. I was going to therapy, but I was also, you know, I was numbing out with alcohol too. And mm-hmm. it got to the point where I just had this moment one day where I thought to myself, this isn't helping. This just actually isn't <laughs> helping. Probably not, Megan. You know? I'm making it worse. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I, and, the, and the thing is, like, Gosh, darn it. I would, you know, but I had certain rules. I, you know, I remember, like, because I, I can't have any alcohol in my system before, you know, so many hours before my shift. Mm-hmm. I would wait till five o'clock, you know, like, mm-hmm. so I had Tell certain rules. I know her and recover from alcohol. Right. You know, but at the same time, <laughs> right. it's like, why do you have to have rules, Megan? Like, you know, right. because... Mm-hmm. How important is you know mm-hmm. I but I remember I had a really tragic call and I got off shift and I was just destroyed over this call it was a it was a child murder oh, and wow wow and we wound up you know trying to you know it was it was a very sudden call we happen to be down the street and we we know we rushed there we rushed off scene we were doing everything we possibly could i bet because you know we didn't know how long this child had been down so we just did mm-hmm. everything we could possibly do by the grace of god we were down the street from a pediatric trauma mm-hmm. center so it, you know certain things were lined up that it was like yeah, we were the closest Sounds unit. Like we did everything, you know, and the child still died. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you know they called it in the ER, I walked outside and I started punching my ambulance and kicking oh. it and punching it and screaming and crying and then I called, you know, my supervisor and I said, we're done. You know, we're, we were supposed to have, I think like another hour or two on shift. And I just said, no, I said, we're done. We're not working this hour. And it was the one time where instead of discussing things with supervisors, you know, like in a professional manner, (laughs) um, I just firmly said, I don't care what you say. I am not doing this to me or my partner. We just lost a kid. Your, Forget it. Your supervisor said, "Okay." <laughs> so, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, I, you, I, I mean, I had a bound. really good rapport mm-hmm. with my coworkers, with supervisors. You know, mm-hmm. so for me mm-hmm. to be as firm as I was and not going to bend, I think the mm-hmm. message was mm-hmm. received by them, and yeah, they mm-hmm. had another unit come over and cover so we could yeah. go home. And yeah. so now I'm home. I cannot stop thinking about this. My cortisol levels, my stress levels, my heart rate is still high. And I am just at our condo. Mm -hmm. And I remember that day waiting, standing in the kitchen at 4.59. I took a beer out of the fridge and I watched the clock on the stove turned to five (laughs) o'clock and it went and I got drunk that night Mm -hmm. because I knew what was going to happen later was that if I couldn't get myself chilled out enough one I wouldn't sleep through the night and two I would have nightmares of previous incidents if I didn't get just get me to sleep And so there's that numbing effect. And so, you know, and then the idea is like, oh, and by the way, you're in a relationship and let's just, you know, have a good time tomorrow. (laughs) It's like, no, it's just not going to (laughs) happen. I'm not going to the zoo. (laughs) Yeah. No, I am not going to the barbecue for your sister. It's not happening. (laughs) Like, oh, so-and-so has a birthday party for their kid. I don't want to be there. And I I think the thing Mm -hmm. is that, you know, to the partners, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends of one of us. <laughs> First of all, God bless you. Second is that 
it's not that we are hating the people involved or you. It's that I am completely tapped out emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and I do not have the capacity to go to this next event or go to the store with you because I'm going to face more triggers in the world, which Mm -hmm. I don't want to do, or two, that I'm going to have to try and put on a happy face, which feels like the most inauthentic thing I could possibly do. Sure. And so there's a lot of avoidance that happens. And, you know, that occurring a couple of times a month, you know, really wears on our partners. And it's really Mm -hmm. hard. And I acknowledge that, you know, this is not an easy road, but even more of a push to go, okay, then we Mm -hmm. need to be in therapy, number one. We need to be Mm -hmm. in couples counseling or family counseling or whatever needs to happen because we can't have this continue to go on. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, after that, um, I had, I had another incident that happened where I was, I was physically attacked outside of my station. Um, I won't go into great detail because that's like for its own podcast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I was put off work. I had, I had a, I had quite a few injuries, but one of the ones Mm -hmm. that was remarkable was a strangulation injury. And I was put off work, so things were covered under work comp. And somehow, some way, I got put into this particular healthcare system that they were going to, this is where we're going to send you for care. And they had me meet with a psychiatrist and said, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a new therapy that we, we want you to meet with this particular therapist. And she'll explain about it. And I was like, okay you know I'm having nightmares of this all the time and you know my my life is just a mess after this I can't work because they won't let me you know and um and so I said yeah I fine I'll do whatever just I'll do anything. just tell me what to do <laughs> and so I went into the office of this woman and she explained that there was this new therapy called EMDR which I had never heard about before mm-hmm. But what's Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yes. Is the name of that. Yeah. For those of you out there. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even know what she was talking about. And she said, basically to sum it up was she said to me, for this generation of veterans, meaning like my age, which this was a long time ago, folks, hold on. Um, <laughs> they had veterans come back who were absolutely suffering from being in Afghanistan and Iraq with full-blown PTSD. They did 12 sessions of EMDR with these vets. And at the 13th session, they could no longer diagnose them with PTSD because they were asymptomatic. And I flipped out and I said, let's do it. And I did a number of sessions about this one particular incident. And Mm -hmm. there was one day where I wasn't having nightmares anymore. I wasn't having intrusive thoughts anymore. I wasn't have visions Mm -hmm. of this attack happening over and over or, Mm -hmm. you know, sitting up in the middle of the night gasping Mm -hmm. for breath because I felt like I was being choked. Like it stopped. And so, and, and so that was. So a, you recommend EMDR for people who are first responders, for people with trauma. Who look at the look on your face. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes, please don't do this. You know, <laughs> it'll only change your life for the better. Um, I absolutely do, and I think one thing is, you won't regret it. You will regret not doing it. Mm-hmm. Mike, what do you say to that? I'm sure, here's what Mike says to that. What do you think of that, Mike? I agree with that 100%. I've heard nothing but good about it, good results. I am not trained in how to do it mm-hmm. myself, however, 
And Kelly, that's your fault because we have too many therapists in our office that are trained in it. Already. Okay, so everything's <laughs> so my fault. Thank you, Mikey. Yeah, everything's right. my fault. Save time. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. But I, I've heard wonderful things about it, and I do. Um, uh-huh. If I have clients that are do have traumatic uh, past, mm-hmm. I recommend them to one of our four or five counselors mm-hmm. that are trained in yeah. it. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah, they're all over. You can find EMDR therapists trained by um, the institution. If you go to emdr.com, um, people are trained in that. But we'll have, the, we'll have the resources at the bottom of this page. Um, you know, so we talked about maladaptive behaviors, guys, and first responders. We talked about PTSD. Um, we talked about how to, how to treat um, those folks. Um, we talked about prevention, you know, Megan, you were like, you know, doing cat therapy as much as you could. Uh, Mike, you talked about debriefing to try to, to reduce that when people come off these really difficult calls. Uh, I talked about um, reducing the stigma um, and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I, you kind of answered my questions when I didn't even get a chance to answer them, you guys. <laughs> so thanks for that. So what I want to know is what else, Greg, what do you want to ask? And, what else do you all uh, want to say? Uh, one thing that keeps coming up for me, and, and I wish I had come up this by myself, but I had in a treatment program, and they said that what happens to us is that we we have shame about our humanity. Oh yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and that's like, man, none of us are perfect, and and no one, and to act like nothing's going on is just it's. A travesty in some sense. And so, and it's, but I understand the shame part of it, you know, because you, you think you're weak or, you know, and it's like, no, you're, you're human. Right. It's like, sorry, man, you're human and this isn't cool. And let's figure out how to process it, you know, and it's like, but it, that hit me so much. It's like, because I'm I was carrying a lot of shame about my humanity that I'm not perfect mm-hmm. and, you know, and stuff affects me. And the story you were telling that that actually happened, I had that experience. Uh, when I was working another job doing case management, and they brought this kid in that was five years old and and uh, had, had supposedly had trauma, and when he came in, he was blue, and the the or the the doctor at the ER was working on this kid, and he like crashed two or three times, and they got him back, and they called the chopper, right, and and the chopper, the doctor's talking to the paramedics on the chopper and says, you you're going to have to maybe resuscitate this kid on the trip and it was, he was like leaving it up to them. And I'm like, can you imagine that being left up to you? That like, well, you can leave Make it here, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and it, what it does, it, a more uh, enormous amount of respect for the physician and the, and, and then the detective showed up and I'm like, oh, oh, this is not what it appears to be. And he finally, the kid passed and, and uh, the two paramedics had to fly back to Loma Linda and, um, uh, and the nurses that were attending to him, both of them were on the bench crying, right. you know, because it was so, everybody worked so hard, but it was so tragic. Yeah. And it's like, Jesus Christ, I re- that happened five years right. ago? No, Greg, you know, I, your, I, your time I, is so bad. That was like 15 years ago. <laughs> no, 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 that's true. <laughs> it is about 15 years, so at least 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I remember that like it oh, was yeah. yesterday. Right. And I'm mm-hmm. like, can you imagine that happening and happening yeah. and happening again or more violent yeah, or, such, you know, and it's just- That is so true, Jesus Greg. Christ. So it's like, man, it's like, that's your humanity. It don't, part of you don't want to lose that, right? Be so callous by those things, right? And the reality, no one's a, no one's a robot. You carry that shit around with and, you. And you're right. You know, it. it is so- interesting how we come across these things but then it's this internalization about well i need to be tough i can't let them see me cry you know and i remember after the particular attack where i was strangled i got in the ambulance and i said to the medic who was taking care of me because I had to go to the hospital. The other person had, you know, the attacker had to go to the hospital. It was just, it, it was a horrific situation. And I looked at the medic and I, and I was crying because I was in so much physical pain. I mean, holy mm-hmm. cow. And I said, don't tell anybody that I cried. 
And like now at the, you know, the position that I'm in my life now, I look back at my younger self, the younger medic that she was. Mm -hmm. And I have such compassion for that younger version of myself to go, Mm -hmm. you didn't think you had the support to break down about someone who could have killed me, but you thought you had to be so tough to not have your coworkers know that you cried Mm -hmm. because you were in so much physical Mm -hmm. pain. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I'm years apart from, you know, who I was at that point and the healing that has taken place and everything. But one of my healing steps was to look back at that and say, you don't have to carry that burden anymore. You know, and like you were saying, the shaming of our own, you know, humanity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my experience when I, talk with people and I've also been involved with peer support and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. is that there is a lot that people are carrying around. I mean, you can say that for society as a whole, you know, if you're alive today, (laughs) hang on to your hats. Like you 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 take those those quizzes and it's like, yep, I checked all the boxes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's so hard. (laughs) And, um, but there is the more I would get into deeper discussions with my coworkers who were struggling, mm-hmm. you know, because some people knew that I was in therapy and they would ask me questions or they would come find me or, you know, mm-hmm. we were in a hallway and hey, can I talk to you for a second? You know, or <laughs> hey, uh, yeah. I think I might need a therapist. Mm-hmm. Who should I go to? And, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm palming mm-hmm. business cards to people because like it's <laughs> so everyone's so afraid that you know mm-hmm. to admit that we need help the fact that i'm palming yeah. business cards as you know we've coordinated a a walk by in a hallway and i'm gonna high five them and give them a business card to a therapist like how sad is this <laughs> you know <laughs> like, well, um yeah but there was also a lot of painful things that we've had in our past that mm-hmm. you know I talk with people and you know they've they've got these things in their past but but oh it didn't affect me you know um uh, you know I was I was talking with someone the other day and well yeah my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was a drug addict but like I'm okay and I'm going how is that even possible <laughs> you know and now and now they're in a first responder field and and I'm just going yeah uh, yeah there's absolutely no correlation yeah. whatsoever sure Um, you know, the, when you're used to being in chaos, you will find more chaos to be in. And that can be, that can look like a job, like one of ours, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've had trauma Mm -hmm. and I learned that my trauma response is that I end up being the caregiver, right? Cause because I I don't want people to, I, you're, I want you to rely on me. I don't want to have to rely on you, you know? I want to be the caretaker, right? Because I'm like, didn't get shit in my childhood, you know? So I'm like, just learn the lesson of just take care of yourself, help other people, then you have. So that's just, it's like classic trauma response. I just learned that like maybe three months ago. (laughs) But, oh, that's why I do that. It's like, that's why I do that weird shit that makes no sense. You know, and it's like paramedics. I'm like, the things that they see, cops, I mean, especially in a really active area, it's got to be like unbelievable, yeah. you know, and the fact of like, oh, you have to not only have to do this job, you have to carry it in silence right. forever. And it's, I mean, it's, it sucks. I mean, we, we, my view is that we need to talk more about stuff like mm-hmm. this and that cops are human beings and first respond to the human beings and they, and they carry a lot of, carry society's yeah. troubles up front you know and it's like and that's not that's not easy to do it's not so it it sure as hell made me corp more compassionate towards first responders cops anybody in law enforcement anybody trying to basically protect and serve the public it sucks sometimes and i think also you know something that i was thinking about the other day is like what did i 
what would I wish for people to know is that I hope that they understand that we cried for them too. Yeah. To all the moms who lost their children, we cried for yeah. your kids too. There was yeah. not a single time that didn't happen. And the painful, tragic situations that we came upon, like we are not numb to it. We, we have a high level of functioning in it because we have to get things done but we feel it. And I hope that brings comfort to people who've lost their children, their loved ones. You know, if we were involved and attended to them, you know, they were taken to the hospital, is that we do everything we can and we may not cry in that moment because we can't, right? But you're absolutely right that I would have gone home and been thinking about it and prayed for them and felt the pain. And, you know, so I hope at least people understand that they, fi they find some comfort in that, that we care very deeply about what we do, very deeply. And it's very clear from how you're talking that you really do care and did care at the time when you were working. It was very important for you and very passionate about it. I know, Mike, you've always been very passionate about helping people as well. Mike, is there anything you want well, to say to I wrap up? Can I ask a quick question to both Mike and Megan? Sure. Is it okay if we cry for you? Yeah. You sure? Yes. You cry for me all the time, every time you see me. <laughs> he cries you a river all the time, I'm not kidding, Mikey. because it's like, who cries for you, Megan? Who cries for you, Mike? I had to yeah. learn how so, to cry for myself. Yeah. And that was mm -hmm. done. Yeah, a lot of times people do. With some wonderfully mm -hmm. trained therapists. Um, mm -hmm. That it was okay for me to have compassion for myself. And to cry the tears that maybe got stuffed yeah. from lots of incidents yeah. over calls yeah. over yeah. years. And, yeah. you know, and now I feel like I'm a person who's able to hold the space for someone else because I have mm -hmm. been there, done that. Um, I'm able to just sit with someone in their pain and I don't have to fix it. Yeah. You know, but yes, like I, I, I know what you're saying, Greg, and yes, it is okay yeah. because okay. even somebody saying thank you for what you did or thank you for mm -hmm. your service or any, like mm -hmm. that means so much. It really, really does for us. It does mean it does mean a lot that recognition, the recognition, and also like you said, Megan, learning to cry yourself. And Mike, I would agree. You know this. I mean, I know Mike cries. I, I know you I do. Mike. A, I have you no know? problem and it's crying. Very healthy. Yeah, he's I a cry crier. With, I cry with clients too. Yeah, even on scene. Yeah. Good. Absolutely. It's a really healthy and yeah, healing kind sure of thing, is. crying. It's just part of mm -hmm. our biology. So it's important that we learn to do that and that we make it okay. You know, one of our, our friends um, who, again, was police officer, he said when he was young and out on patrol, you know, out, out, he'd say to other people, he'd say, well, there's no crying, there's no crying in this job. And l later he said women tended, when they started to come into the um, uh, police force, uh, they so sometimes they did cry more on scenes and he said they really taught the guys a lot how important that was to recognize how they were feeling mm -hmm. and just kind of let it out. So um, this evolution our first responders are going through with more and more women, uh, making it okay for men and women to cry, to express feelings, talking about therapy. This diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is not new. It's been around a while, you know, treating it. So, Mike, before we go, is what, there anything else you'd like uh, to say? I'm backing up a little bit to what we were talking about before, but Megan triggered this thought yes. about when she talked about one of the maladaptive behaviors is, we, is drinking. And we have to also, another maladaptive behavior that we had two incidents of this in the apartment I was at is suicide. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the um, 
these particular these um, two officers started drinking very heavily. There was problems in their work performance, in their homes. Uh, life was going awry, and they both committed suicide. And uh, well, no, no, not the same time. There was a, it was years apart, but they're they're both uh, at and where I worked was a relatively small department, so it was a high percentage when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But um, I think one thing, if that I think management in these, whether it's uh, fire, paramedics, or police, can do is be aware, more aware of where their officers, their employees are, and look for these signs to get them help quicker. Absolutely. We want to encourage people that they come to counseling that it is completely confidential. Yeah. Con- confidential. Mm-hmm. Many first responders are afraid it'll get back to their department or their bosses, and they won't be considered for promotion, or they'll be looked on as weak. And you know, we we got to keep an eye on them. So everything is confidential. We cannot talk to anybody about that you're even attending counseling. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Here, here. Yeah, and I want to just follow up with, you know, what you guys touched on about the suicide, you know, tragedy that is alive and well and alive and well in our community because prior to COVID, it was the number one killer of first responders was suicide. Yeah. And so I've had coworkers commit suicide. Um people that I've known in other agencies. And as we all know, or maybe we don't, but we need to talk about it more, is that mental illness left untreated is fatal. And so the coping mechanisms, like Mike touched on about drinking, um, you know, and people do drugs too, and all, all of these maladaptive behaviors um, can be little deposits into that eventual outcome. And it's okay to say something to your friend, your partner, your cousin, you know, if you know somebody, if you are concerned, mm-hmm. it is okay for you to say something. And I want other people to know that about, you know, you might know a first responder who you're concerned about. I give you permission <laughs> to to do that. Well, you know, because sometimes you have to hear it from somebody else yeah. to That's do right. that in a way, you know, and that might be something that you yourself go to a therapist and figure mm-hmm. out how do we confront this because I am worried. Um, because I saw the after effects of, you know, somebody who I grew up with who didn't get help Mm -hmm. when they should have. And I remember sitting on the floor of my dad's office, begging him, crying on my knees at his Mm -hmm. desk to go get help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I don't want to happen is for another person to go through that experience and there is so much help and so much relief that you can get from getting help like i have experienced and what i say i have gone to the other side there is another Mm -hmm. side to this where you get relief you can get things back under control and you can live again in a better way and learn new techniques of how to deal with things. I highly recommend therapy with a good trauma-trained therapist, does EMDR or ART, which is accelerated resolution therapy, um, and deal with the painful memories. And if it's somebody who's thinking of going into these fields, go deal with those painful memories that you've had prior to this because you're going to be dealing with other people's 
situations. You need to deal with your own first because you cannot pour out from an empty cup. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Caveman and Counselor, where we bring you a unique blend of professional insights and practical perspectives on behavioral health. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to share this episode with others. And don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on future episodes. And hey, for those who'd like to support our work, we have a Patreon page where you can make a donation and gain access to exclusive content. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, take care of your mental health.